You're listening to an episode of Law Review Squared, the Law Review Review. It is 8 p.m. on Thursday, March 25th, 2021. I'm joined today by our panel, Joanne, Seth, and Vishal, who will ask to answer the question, if you could travel through time, would you go to the future or the past? Let's start with Seth. Uh, the future. Okay. Joanne? Um, I think probably the past. Okay. Vishal? I think this is a trick question. I don't think it's possible to travel into the future because it's not decided yet. So I'm gonna go in the past because that's the only option available. Uh, I think that it is possible to travel to the future because we all are at the rate of one second per second. But I would rather go to the past as well, preferably with a copy of today's Wall Street Journal so I could buy some stocks. While supplies last, you can still get a free Law Review Squared sticker by sending your mailing address to lexclava at gmail.com. That's L-E-X-C-L-A-V-A at gmail.com. We'll ship anywhere, even if you're overseas. Finally, a reminder that the opinions here are those of the panelists and do not represent the view of Penn State Dickinson Law, the panelists' present former or future employers, or any other entity. Contents of this recording do not constitute legal advice. And now I'll turn the episode over to Vishal. Hello. Um, our article this week is by Ingrid Robains and is called Having Too Much. The article discusses different non-intrinsic justifications for limitarianism, which is I'm sure a word that I'm going to mispronounce and others might as well, but it sounds kind of like libertarianism, but it's with limit at the front. And limitarianism is a position that there is a certain limit to how much wealth anyone can accumulate or should accumulate. The amount of wealth in excess of what is required to flourish is what Robains uh, refers to as surplus wealth, and that's the kind of wealth that Robains argues uh, we might consider uh, confiscating to use to different ends. And Robains forwards two possible justifications for, uh, uh, for libertarianism. The first one is a democratic argument, and the second one is an argument centering around unmet needs. The democratic argument explores the idea that excessive amounts of wealth inequality is inherently undemocratic. According to Robaines, financial power is easily translatable into political power, and when some have immense fortunes while others have close to nothing, you cannot claim that everyone has an equal say in the democratic process. Robaines argues that beyond a certain level of political inequality, you can no longer say a system is democratic. The argument of unmet needs argues that as long as any one of three conditions exists, it is not permissible to allow wealth to accumulate in a small number of hands. Instead, it should be used to ameliorate those conditions. The three conditions that Robain's lists are extreme global poverty, local or global disadvantages, and global issues that demand big collective action, such as global warming climate change. Um, Robaines argues that currently all these three conditions exist, and so we should pursue a policy of limitarianism. With that short summary, we're going to turn to some questions um, and hopefully learn more about the article and what we think about it. Uh, to start off, just short answers from uh, my lovely panelists, because we'll get into more specifics later. But what did you guys think of limitarianism as an idea as Robaines uh, advanced it? Um, Seth, let's start with you. I think it's an interesting concept. Um, I say concept because I think while it's it, it has a noble end, I think uh, it has a lot of holes in it, and it's somewhat detached from reality. I think the end goal it sets out to achieve, like I just said, um, is great. But uh, you know, I don't like the means by which it goes to achieve those ends. Um, you know, maybe if we were having this conversation starting society from scratch all over again, it could be a contender, but you know, we're not. So, um, but it's an interesting thought piece and I, I did enjoy reading it. 
for sure. Uh, Joanne, what do you think? I think in theory it, it's good, but I think because like like Seth said, because where we are now, you know, we're kind of too far along that it's kind of unreasonable to try and have that kind of society. Anthony, anything to add? Well, I, I, I like discussing philosophy. I think it's worth looking at thought pieces. Um, if we are talking about philosophy, I am generally more interested in epistemology than in virtue ethics. But this limitarianism, I think, to evaluate it, it depends a lot on where the limits are actually set. She proposed a kind of um, a back of the envelope formula in one of the sections of the article um, that I don't think is is practical or captures all parts of a person's economic existence. Um, but the way I understood this was that this is essentially a form of utilitarianism where instead of the collective uh, good, the emphasis is being placed on the bottom end of the wealth distribution rather than the collective benefit to society. And there are things I think she got right. I do think that is, she's correct, that it is a matter of public debate and reasonable public speculations to determine whether somebody's rich or not, not up to some, not it should not be left up to somebody's private conscience. Um, so it was an interesting read, and and I would echo also the questions about whether or not this is feasible in real life. Wonderful. I love that because it leads really well into our next question. Um, on page 10 of the piece, uh, Robins discusses some solutions that, uh, to, to, to issues underlying the, the democratic argument um, that don't require confiscation of wealth or mass redistribution of wealth. She discusses things like funding public media so that there's uh, you know non- uh, uh, profit-driven uh, media actors that can disseminate information, anti-corruption legislation, more campaign oversight, and what I refer to as the matching choice, where she says, you know, uh, wealthy people can decide either to give up some forms of political power or uh, or consent to a higher tax rate. Um, and so these are are kind of half line or halfway measures according to Robains, and she doesn't think that they are complete solutions. What do you guys think about uh, these proposed solutions? And do you think that uh, do you agree with Robains that they don't completely solve the problem? Uh, we'll start with Anthony this time. Well, I agree that they don't completely solve the problem. I also think that, you know, there are time and place uh, aspects to some of this. She talked a lot, a lot about um, the the wealthy, the rich being able to buy media outlets, and then that can translate into uh, political power. It's a way for to convert wealth into political power. But one thing that I remember really clearly, um, in in the wake of the George Floyd killing, we were living in St. Paul um, as the initial protests are happening. Uh, conventional media outlets were on the scene um but we were watching tv we were listening to a police scanner and we were watching live streams that were coming off the ground and um you know flipping between channels at one point abc was showing this aerial footage 
this mouthpiece of the you know establishment showing aerial footage saying how restrained the police were being in their response to these protesters and simultaneously we're watching three or four live streams showing the police absolutely brutalizing unresisting protesters so there are escape valves around these things that wealth can buy right information seems to want to be free um that doesn't negate her point but i think that failing to see that there are non-wealth connected mechanisms by which some of these things are addressed is kind of a limitation uh, of um of, of her argument for sure no and i love that comparison or that point and the idea that you know there's there's levers we can pull on outside of uh regulating or discussing wealth to uh make institutions more democratic including this like democratization of information that's made possible with the internet and things like that um joanne any any thoughts from you i don't really have too too much to say on this other than that they're not really complete solutions like they dive into theories of what we would like to have done but like they're they're not complete they're not going to get everything done that we want done Sure. And so I, I do find it interesting, the the tension between the answer to number one and the answer to the second question, where like there are these other solutions that are forwarded, uh, but we all kind of agree they're not complete solutions. Um, but libertarianism also seems to be, and I agree with a lot of the things you said, that you know it doesn't seem to be completely feasible either, but it is a, an important public discussion. Um, now, do you, do you guys believe that uh, high levels of wealth inequality inherently lead to undemocratic societies? If you do think that, then how committed should we be to lowering wealth inequality and how committed should we be to democracy? Um, Joanne, do you want to start? Uh, sure. Um, I, I do believe that high levels of wealth do, um, that inequality does lead to more undemocratic societies. I mean, we are said to be, you know, a dem democratic society here in America, but I feel like there is definitely that difference in, um, so, uh, Robaine's did talk about it, um, how, like, political funding and stuff, uh, depending on who's, like, running for polls or, or for elections or whatever, um, if they have more money, if those people that follow, um, the person running has more money, they're going to be larger donors that that are giving more money for um, campaigning and everything. So, you know, they're more likely to be elected or whatever because they've gotten so much more campaigning and more attention than someone smaller who does not have um, wealthy donors to give. So I think that definitely you know influences who's being voted or whatever um which definitely makes it undemocratic um and i think it's really hard to say um if there's a solution to um fixing wealth inequality just because you know it's so hard to do um we've thought about uh like taxing uh more but that just leads to um middle and lower class still having more taxes and it's not as large of a difference for um, people in like the top one percent so 
I mean, I think it's really hard to fix it, but we should be trying to find some sort of solution. For sure. And like, uh, uh, just, uh, not trying to plug anything here, but I am running for office right now and it is expensive to do it. I mean, I'm talking to a union print shop to get 200 lawn signs and 200 lawn signs uh, printed for you, run you about a thousand dollars. And, you know, it's a local race. I'm not, I don't, you know, it, like donations do matter and where they come from end up mattering too. Um, Seth, do you have any thoughts? I do. Yeah. I don't, so I'm going to kind of contradict myself here, but I don't think inherently um, wealth inequality leads to undemocratic societies. I think um, it, 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 you know, it, it sort of manifests itself by taking advantage of a political system that allows itself to be captured or bought. Um, you know, that being said, money is influence, and I don't think humans have uh, quite yet built a democratic system that isn't viable. Um, I mean, think of it even in like the tertiary effects of it. So people, i.e. voters, they see prestige and money as, as someone doing something right, as someone who knows how the world works or something, and and as someone that's figured it out. So they might not see that, you know, whatever elected officials, parents were wealthy and sent their kid to St., you know, whatever grade school that runs 45 grand a year, and then that person walks into the top tier schools and has all the opportunities. So they get elected and then bam, you have this sort of class-based political system. And um, I found that, you know, that example is, um, is, isn't the exception rather it's, it's closer to the norm. And so then, then factoring into what you both were talking about, about how campaigns are run. I mean, for a typical congressional race, the party infrastructures, they don't, consider you a valid candidate unless you have raised at least $100,000 in the first quarter of your campaign. And that's the bare minimum. Like if you don't hit that, you're not getting any money. So how do people actually raise that money in the first quarter? Most candidates in office just drop their own money in the race from the get-go. And then, you know, bam, they got that 100K and then they get the party infrastructure behind them and all that stuff. Or they're like wealthy business people, wealthy attorneys with wealthy circles um, that support them right away. So, um, you know, eventually use that money to boost your brand and raise more money. So there's a sort of barrier to entry in the political sphere, and it's difficult for the non-wealthy people to overcome. So that sort of factors into the whole undemocratic process as well. So, um, you know, I guess my ultimate answer is yes and no, but it probably leans more toward yes. Sure. And, and just as a point on that, um, when you are asking for groups for endorsements, one of like, they have a whole series of questions as to how much you have raised in, in donations, how much you intend to raise, what your strategy is, um, what number you need to win, because no one wants to endorse a candidate they think are going to lose, and money matters a lot <laughs> if you're going to win. And that's true even about, you know, progressive nonprofits. If they're looking to endorse people, those are questions they always ask. Um, Anthony, do you have thoughts? Well, one thing when I was considering this, this is quoting um, from uh, Ribbon's article, and she said, donations generally come with the expectation that if the funder one day needs help uh, from the politician, he or she will get it. She didn't cite that statement. And I, you know, maybe I have become more cynical as I have gotten older. But in this, I feel like maybe I'm too naive. You guys are more politically connected than I am. My sense of things is that people who are funding um 
not necessarily the ones who are funding both sides because they just want access overall, but the but people who are making bona fide donations to campaigns are supporting that candidate because they believe in what that candidate wants uh, or is, is is representing. So like I donated money to Senator Warren in you know her primary campaign. And I certainly did not expect that that you know bought me any type of access to Senator Senator Warren. Now it was not a great deal of money either. Um, so I, I I do have that question, um, and, but you guys would be able to speak to that more than more than I can. The other thing is that you know I, I I think wealth inequality is a problem. I think income inequality is a problem. They're very serious problems. I don't know that they are not that they are problems that are. Um, I guess they're a little bit orthogonal to whether it's a democratic society or not. If we look at classical democracies, they had no trouble separating people out based on how much wealth they had, how much land. Um, and, and by classical, I'm talking about Athens, but you know, other, other earlier democracies, even the U.S. Uh, did that for long periods of time. The 15th Amendment gives everybody the right to vote. And I think that, that that's kind of the important character of the democracy. That 15th Amendment doesn't guarantee us all an equal voice. Maybe it should, um, it, but uh, um, I, I, I don't think that that's what the intent is behind it either. It kind of strikes to the core of like, um, you know, lowercase r republicanism versus lowercase d, you know, democracy. Um, I tried to factor that into my answer, but I ended up removing it in a second draft. Sweet. Um, let's move on. On my next question is, how do you think wealth inequality's impact on democracy, as described in Robain's work, affects the rule of law as an institution? And when I talk about the rule of law, I talk about an institution that delivers justice to people that are having disputes in an equitable, reliable, and accessible way. Um, so, how does wealth inequality, you know, in, in, in along the same lines that it affects democracy, affect the rule of law um, as I've described it? Uh, Anthony, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, I, I think that wealth inequality means that people have differential access to justice, access to the arms of justice. Um, if, um, you know, Bill Gates is accused of murder and I'm accused of murder, Bill Gates is going to be able to spend a lot more money on lawyers than I, I will be able to. And I'm, and I'm using him because I don't think him or me is going to commit murder anytime soon. But, um, the uh, um, so there is certainly a a differential impact or differential access to the benefits of rule of law um, based based on on those inequalities. I think the most uh, important thing we established with that answer is that Bill Gates is the least likely billionaire to kill somebody, and now I kind of want to make the list of which billionaires are are more likely. Um, Don't ask the COVID deniers, man. They'll have a whole different opinion about that one. <laughs> Seth, uh, do you want to take a go? I, I honestly had about the same answer that Tony did. I think uh, you know the more money you have to spend on um, battling lawsuits or, or criminal prosecutions or whatever against you, um, you know, the, the, the better off you'll probably be. I guess as an ad additional point of thought with that question is, uh, you know, if wealth inequality inherently doesn't lead to an undemocratic society, 
would you say that a society that has unequal access to justice, unequal access to the rule of law, does that start hinting at an undemocratic society? Because the two don't have to be true at the same time. Um, I know this wasn't a, a already discussed question, so if you want to pass on it, go ahead. But um, Anthony, you're nodding, so I'm going to ask you first. No, I, I mean, I think that's kind of where I was going uh, earlier on. The concept of rule of law and the concept of democracy they're not completely orthogonal, they're not completely different unconnected concepts, but they're not necessarily the same concept. Um, you can have a strong monarchy, but have a just system. You know, in biblical times, King Solomon was a good king that took care of everybody, right? And But it was a, it was a monarchy, it wasn't a democracy. Um, or, you know, you could use Augustus Caesar or somebody who's actually existed or, or whatever if you need to. But the, the, the point is that, um, you know, democracy is not the only system that, um, that can provide justice to people. Sometimes we forget that. And, um, you know, I think in the U.S., a lot of times we forget that there are other systems out there. They do work um, to one extent or another. Maybe some of them are even better than what we have, but we don't consider it. For sure, that's a great point. Seth, do you have anything to add? You look contemplative. I'm, I'm trying to say something uh, and phrase it well, but I'm, I'm struggling. But I think it's got something to do with like the way that we use the systems, right? You know, a lot of times I think systems are inherently made, for the most part, um, in theory, just. But w when you fa start factoring in external realities and, and Sort of outside inputs and how people use the systems. That's that's really where the the faults come into play, um, for the most part. I think. Joanne, do you have anything to add? Well, with your second question that you asked there, I think you know the monetary value that people put into like their uh, lawyers or whatever. It, I think. Well, what Dad said too with the. Uh, I think he said, did he say Bill Gates or something? Uh, wouldn't commit murder. But if he did, if he did, he'd have more money to spend on it. And I don't think that the fact that he would win a case more so than that probably would has nothing to do with the justice system, I think. Um, I mean, it, it crosses a little bit, but I think having a correct justice system is kind of separate from whether or not somebody has the money to spend on proper lawyers and law enforcement because maybe you know like a public defender is better because you know they think more of the public and less of just one wealthy client so maybe maybe that could get in the way of that Anthony, do you have something to add? Yeah. Um, so just to clarify, the uh, concept that the public defender is better, is is a better defense attorney, comes from the idea that the public defender is in court constantly, fighting cases constantly, and has a lot more litigation experience after even one or two years than, than private criminal defense attorneys. That's not to put down private criminal defense attorneys. Um, that's just that's a sentiment I've seen expressed recently. Um, the second concept that I think I want to bring forward, I was going to talk about this on one of the later questions, is I'm not sure that justice necessarily is what I want to be the first and foremost value of our society. I kind of think I prefer fairness. 
fairness mitigates against these inequalities. But the difference between fairness and justice is when King Solomon had, you know, the two women who had the baby, cutting the baby in half is justice. Watching their reactions and giving the baby to the actual mother is fairness. Um, taking an eye for an eye is justice. But rehabilitating criminals and, you know, making the victims whole is fairness, in my mind anyway. Um, now, that's not to say that, like, I'm, I, I'm in law school and I'm against justice. No, of course not. But, um, but if we're talking about what, what values our society should, um, sh should be working towards, um, I, I, I honestly think that it's more about fairness than, than justice, harsh justice. Um, all right. Uh, love that discussion. It's great that we're talking about Bill Gates because he features in the next question. How do you square the argument of unmet needs with philanthropic work that people like Bill Gates do? And how does that implicate the discussion that Obeins has regarding viewing libertarian or limitarianism as a political versus moral doctrine? Um, Anthony, you brought up Bill Gates. I'm sure you have a lot to say about him. So um, we'll start with you. Uh, I actually don't have that much to say on this one. Um, surely there can be no argument that there are unmet needs, but I don't think that it's necessarily Bill Gates's responsibility to fill those needs. Um, it is collectively the job of society to structure society in a way that those needs get met. Where we get into a consideration of, of Robins's work, Robins would say, well, we should take everything above some threshold number x and then apply it towards those needs um and that gets tricky for me um part of it has to do with the way that our wealth is structured right you know wealth is not money that is sitting in a bank vault um somebody who is far more deserving of having their wealth taken away you know like jeff bezos who horrible towards his workers um yeah he, even he his his wealth is built made up of amazon stock right well it's made up of amazon stock because he made amazon and he should have a right to profit off off of his work um gates is is a similar way he made his money because he founded microsoft and microsoft did a lot of important things in society i mean we, we shouldn't pretend that he uh, you know did nothing so um you know there's a balance to be done um but uh i i don't have um much hope for phil philanthropy to fill in the the needs of the many because there are so many needs for sure and and that's the kind of along the lines i was thinking too that you know there is great philanthropic work done but perhaps um we need more structural organizational uh, systems that, that accomplish those goals seth do you have anything to add i kind of took a different turn on this i didn't look at the philanthropic so much as like the taxing uh aspect that she puts on it i i don't know that taxing away all surplus wealth um is sustainable in fact i think it's probably unsustainable and we have to consider like what else that wealth is doing too right i mean it's it's helping to fund the market economy and and, and produce things and um allocate resources and 
you know, the free flow of capital is necessary for, for especially market economy to thrive, which is essentially what the whole world has right now for the most part. And to give government full control over that, um, you know, history, uh, history shows has not been good for anyone. But, um, you know, governments already do redistribute some surplus wealth, and that's a good thing. I mean, we need, we need uh, welfare systems and safety nets and all kinds of things like that. But the way the author kind of frames her argument is in this like all or nothing sense. And I don't believe that anything really works in absolute terms. For sure. I think there's a famous Jedi who said something to that um, effect. Joanne, do you have anything to add? Well, when I'm looking at like the philanthropy side of it, you know, that's you want to give that money and stuff to people that need it. But I think it's unreasonable to think that um, people like Jeff Bezos just wants to give away their money um, because they have made it themselves. A lot of people have. Um, and, you know, taking all that money from people that make, I don't know what she said it was, like 120,000 euros a year or pounds. I, can't, I don't even know what the symbol was. If it was euros or if it was pounds, I think it was pounds. But that's, that's a lot of money a year. Um, I don't think it's reasonable for us to take that and like apply it i think in theory it'd be great just because you know um i like limitarianism i like the idea of it seems very good but i think if we were to take all that money there would be like a lot of backlash i think the rich would probably start to protest which i don't think would be too great for the poor just in the interest of time, I'm going to skip a few questions, and we're going to go down to one that Anthony kind of started answering earlier. Um, Robaines discusses justice and says that justice should be the first and foremost uh, and most important value in society, the, the first priority. Do you agree, and, and what does justice mean to you, and what do you think it means to Robaines? Um, and this is like a big question. I'd be happy to find an article that just talks about what justice is in the future, but uh, we'll start right here. Uh, Seth, do you want to start with this? I personally don't have a solid definition um, for what I consider justice yet. Um, as of right now, I, I just kind of know it when I see it, I think. I've, I've mentioned before that I'm not a big comp fan. I think he's kind of too rooted in like authoritarian thought and kind of lacks the necessary nuance. Um, Rawls adds a little bit of that nuance, um, but I still, you know, I, I don't know. I Maybe I haven't read enough into it, but um, the author here seems to be concerned about like the, the sort of core utility yeah. of making the dollar that isn't doing as much for a wealthy individual and transferring it to the individual who would find more utility out of the dollar. But to some extent, I think she overlooks the social utility of the dollar, right? She looks at it from the standpoint of, like individual to individual, but not against the backdrop of what else that dollar is doing besides just paying for core needs. And I get it though. I mean, on, on one hand, the investment of a dollar is, is just making more money for the already wealthy investor, but it's also helping to make sure that production continues and the world goes around. So, so really, I think it all comes down to balance, which I don't really see a lot of in, uh, in this theory here. Um, you know, how do we ensure that the needs of everybody are actually being met while allowing economies to continue to function. And um, 
I think, you know, limitarianism from my reading of this paper kind of puts all its weight on ensuring needs are met, which, which is crucial, but, you know, meeting needs also requires functional economies. And that being said, our current economics, um, you know, places its weight on the opposite side of the scale, I would argue pretty significantly, but, um, you know, it comes down to balance and, and who economies are, are ultimately supposed to serve. And I would argue um, that would be a utilitarian principle. I, I want to say, I'll know it when I see it as a totally valid uh, test that the Supreme Court also uses for certain legal uh, questions. So uh, that's totally, totally valid uh, response. Uh, Anthony, do you have any anything to add to what you'd already said or to anything Seth has said about this? Uh, not particularly. What I do think um, is worth noting out of what Seth has said, Justice is, you know, he'll know it when he sees it. That, and I suspect there's some evidence in there that what justice means to any individual person is not um, going to be objective, that it's a subjective question. When you have subjective questions, societies can answer those questions differently. Um, and uh, that kind of like if we were restructuring human society on a limitarian basis, that would be hurting somebody. I don't know who that person is, but uh, that's equally not ideal. Right. And um, I mean, the the uh, Seth also mentioned Rawls, who tries to have like a more uh, cut and dry approach to like how how to think about justice and i think uh, robaines also cites rawls a, a, a few times but there's there's definitely a, a question there as to what what justice exactly is and and how it varies across um you know different cultures and societies and i think i, I am now very interested in just having a talk about justice um joanne do you have uh, any ideas here so i think just like seth and tony said you know uh justice is important but you know when you look at what justice is, it's kind of hard to tell if justice is really being served case to case, kind of, and person to person kind of has a different thought on what justice really is, depending on um, how that justice is served. And going off of what some of the things that Robaines was talking about um, with uh, wealth and everything, I know she did mention in there. Um, this is going off of the last question that we talked about. Um, you know, you can't just take all the money from the rich because um, when you look at how different rich people have money or whatever, she did mention, say someone has um, a disability or something and they have a surplus of money, but then they spend, say, like $7,000 or something on a wheelchair that they need to function um in society properly versus someone who spends seven thousand dollars on a scooter that's fun to roll around with the person that bought the scooter has a surplus of money and they're just using it for extra things but the person who bought the wheelchair spent their money on something that they actually needed so like you can't put them in the same class really even if they make the same amount of money, they have different needs that need to be have money spent on different parts. So like when you're thinking about um, what the 1% or the 10% is, 
it's really hard to like differentiate that unless you look deep into who has what needs. For sure, yeah. And thinking about um, wealth in a more comprehensive way, I think is important too, um, associating that with what needs people have. Um, for our final question, we're going to talk about some of the objections that Robaines discusses um, regarding libertarianism. She talks about the unequal opportunities doctrine, which, uh, you know, says that if you have a libertarianist society, you are necessarily getting rid of certain opportunities that uh, the people who, who, from whom you are taking money away from would have otherwise had, and that that is not acceptable. And then she raises the incentive objection, which is the idea that um, if I am $20,000 away from the, the wealth line above which um, a libertarianist society would take the wealth away, I have no incentive necessarily to, to uh, produce $20,000 more value in, in the United States or in any other country. So just briefly, you know, what do you guys think of these objections? She does uh, try to address them in some ways. So what do you think about the objections? And, and did you, I mean, obviously, I, I think a lot of people here have objections to um, libertarianism as, as uh, something that could be instituted. So what are the um, other objections that you guys may have thought of as well? And for this one, we'll start with Joanne. So honestly, I kind of disagree with the unequal opportunities just because, you know, if the wealthy person who once was wealthy, uh, gets part of their money taken away, that gives the opportunities that they had and that they still will have, albeit smaller opportunities, are also given to poor people who did not have those opportunities in the beginning. Um, so like you lose out a little bit, but when you're thinking about the long run for other people, like if everyone can do it, if everyone can have the same opportunities, we can all work together better and create a better society. But saying that it's also very unpractical um, to try and say that because, you know, people think that they deserve um, better opportunities than others. So it's always going to be a matter of like, that's human nature. Humans want humans are selfish we want what's best for us so we're not going to think about losing those higher opportunities to give uh smaller opportunities to people who didn't have those opportunities that we used to have and i just said opportunities a gazillion times um but that's that's my thought on the unequal opportunities doctrine um I didn't really have too much to say about the incentive objection. Um, and I didn't really think of too, too many other um, objections or whatever, just because other than the fact that, you know, it's not practical. Uh, limitarianism is not practical at all, just because we can't go back in time and change our democracy and everything. We, we can't just change the past you know unless you go back like we chose in the beginning i mean we could try that but 
love the tie-in for sure you go back in time to create limitarianism at the start a uh, big fan um I, I also think you know the conversation about a human nature is like a whole nother conversation which i also uh would love to have but you're absolutely uh, dead on i think robaines talks about it too with the uh unequal opportunities doctrine that even if there are uh specific individuals who might have fewer opportunities on the whole society creates more opportunities um uh, Seth, do you have anything to add? A little bit. So inclusive economic theory is something that I've I've written about and spoken about quite a bit over the past few years. And I've been working on this one um, this one essay for the past year or so now that is sort of like my core premise of, of the entire sort of argument. And um, it's actually not too far off um, from this idea of limitarianism, but it's it's also like totally contrarian to it because it uses the free market as, as a means of incentivizing investment downward instead of like uh, government redistribution of that wealth. And I think that's probably a more uh, sustainable way uh, of doing it over time. And um, I, I kind of preface the whole argument on this backdrop of like the, the technological development going on and and how um, how wealth inequality kind of reduces those democratic checks and doesn't allow us to to figure out as a society uh, collectively how to uh, handle and, and adapt to and, and incorporate these new technologies coming out sort of into the in the into the fabric of reality. But um, so that that would be my biggest pushback against limitarianism is that I I don't like the idea of um, you know, a, a government redistribution program. I think there are better ways to do it. I think government can incentivize these things. I think partial redistribution is great, like we already do now with taxes. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm not big on the the, the heavy-handed uh, tactics. So if we if we can't ever make a time machine, we're just going to let Seth um, work it out. He seems to have a solution here. Um, Anthony, do you have anything to add? Yeah, um, I, I do think Robin's was suggesting that you could um, achieve some form of, of limitarianism by moral suasion rather than direct government redistribution. Um, so I'm not sure that that um, it's it's a legitimate objection, but I don't think it's a necess it's a necessary um, blocking point. As far as the two objections he argues against, um, I think the incentive objection, which is the type of thing that comes up. Anytime you have somebody who is proposing something other than unbridled free market capitalism, and I think it's absolutely nonsense. We're doing this without any compensation. We are creating something. It's of value to somebody because we have listeners. Um, all of the open source software that's out there involves people putting in their own time for no real compensation, no meat, um, other than some prestige. And there's a lot of other uh, similar things where people do things for reasons other than to optimize their their monetary income unequal opportunities however i think is a, is a fairly serious critique against the limitarianism um i don't really have enough um you know data at hand to to, to build a model to say whether the loss of opportunities by the wealthy and some of those opportunities are of value to society broadly too, right? You know, the ability to send somebody on a Rhodes Scholarship 
to you know train at a top university and come back or um, the ability to go and you know be received as a patron or a patron to create some massive public art or something like that um, those are opportunities that come out of the existence of having wealth inequality right because it is is the rich that fund those types of things and they're of some value to society and so you get into this balancing question uh, but i think that the the practical objections to limitarianism as as projected um kind of override everything the other thing is that even though she tried pretty hard to talk about wealth consistently throughout i think she was using wealth as a proxy for income and i think wealth and income are two different things um you know my net worth is not zero and my income however is pretty close to zero because i'm a student at the moment um so the the way that that interacts with the fact that people have an amount of wealth and they have an amount of income and it's kind of the combination of both that kind of sets where they sit in society but if you focus on capping one and not the other um i i i i think you run into practicality issues for sure and i i really want to echo what you said about the incentive objection um i really don't buy into it so much of of uh, the reasons people do things are socially determined as opposed to just specifically uh value driven uh on some economic basis um i mean it, uh, in a lot of ways having children might not have economic value but people do it because there's a lot of social value um to it anywho that is all of my questions about this article thank you all for your time i'm going to turn it back to Tony now. Okay. And well, uh, thanks again to our panel, uh, Vishal, Joanne, and Seth. You can find a link to the article we discussed by going to lawreviewsquared.com and looking at the episode notes. Let us know what topics you'd like us to consider by twittering suggestions to at squared law. Please like, follow, subscribe, or give us a rating wherever you found this podcast. If you're a law student at any school and would like to join us on a panel, feel free to get in touch. Audio post-processing by Mohammed Salim. Podcast adjourned.